Hi, I'm Jody Millman, and this is Backstage with the Bardavon. Our podcast will draw back the curtain and bring you backstage at the Bardavon 1869 Opera House that is located in Poughkeepsie, New York. For more than 150 years, notables such as Mark Twain, Frank Sinatra, James Earl Jones, Mary Tyler Moore, Santana, Aretha Franklin, and John Legend have graced its stage. Today, my very special guest is legendary bluesman, Joe Lewis Walker. Joe is a Blues Hall of Fame inductee, Grammy winner, and four times Blues Music Award winner. Since picking up a guitar at the age of eight, Joe has collaborated with Jimi Hendrix, B.B. King, Muddy Waters, James Cotton, Ronnie Wood, Steve Miller, and Bonnie Raitt, just to name a few. On his 2020 album, Blues Coming On, he teamed with Mitch Ryder, Yorma Kekkonen, Eric Gale, and others to turn up the heat with funk, blues, and jazz in his trailblazing style. Right before the pandemic, Joe was on tour in China and escaped back to his home in the Hudson Valley just before the lockdown. Joe, welcome to Backstage with the Bardavon. So, uh, good morning, uh, Joe, and welcome to Backstage with the Bardavon. Well, good morning. <laughs> and it's so nice to meet you, you know, for a couple of reasons. First of all, you're a neighbor of mine. We literally live, I would say, five blocks from one another. I passed your house yeah, sure. on the way on the way home from running from running errands from Adams, and you know where Adams is, right? Oh yeah, yeah, all the time. <laughs> and second, you know, you're we're contemporaries, and I was brought up here on the East Coast. And in doing my research, you were brought up in San Francisco during a really instrumental time in the development of music. You picked up guitar when you were eight years old. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to grow up in an atmosphere in San Francisco during the 70s and the 60s and what was going on? Well, um, I'll go back a little farther. Um, I lived in the Fillmore District uh, after my parents. Uh, we initially moved to a really nice neighborhood, which uh, my father and another um preacher named uh, Reverend Stewart, we uh, integrated the neighborhood called the Ingleside neighborhood. My dad moved there in the 50s. And uh, so did a Reverend Stewart, who he had two sons, one named Sylvester and one named Freddie, and a daughter named Rose, and and, and they became Sly and Family Stone. So we, we, we uh, and I got to know, um, of course, I've known Freddie, his brother all my life, and and I've known um, Sly and, and, and family and Reverend Stewart, rest his soul. So, I mean, we, we were there. And then um, uh, my parents uh, broke up for a while. They got back together again. But when they broke up, my mother moved to the Fillmore District. Uh, and we lived in the projects till I was about 12, till I was about 14. And my mother and father got back together and they bought a house up in Upper uh Fillmore, which was really nice. Uh, so uh, I was to answer your question. I was in the Fillmore district, you know, uh, before the hippies got there. I was there when they were there. Played a lot because Bill Graham was very kind to me, and so was uh, several other people like Pig Pen who helped me out, who lived around the corner from me. Yorma, people like that, people that we knew, who got to know, who moved to our neighborhood, and we in the neighborhood became really all mixed up. And uh, so learning music 
my learning was basically around all these people. So I got to hear all these guys as they were, you know, learning their stuff and getting their stuff together. But I learned, of course, the blues from my mother and my father because that's the music that they brought from the South with them. My father left Cleveland, Mississippi, um, and my mother uh, left uh, Little Rock, Arkansas with her mother. My father left Cleveland, Mississippi with his mother and father, and and they brought their music with them, and, and my dad would play the music for me and my mother, and for some reason, it reached me. It didn't reach my older four, four brothers and sisters, not the blues that much anyway, but the other, you know, the, you know, the popular music of the day, of course, they, they played it, but for me... Since I was a little kid, you know, my dad would play it. And so that inspired me to want to play the guitar because most of it was guitar driven and piano because I, I love the piano, you know, a lot. And, and that sort of got me uh, inspired. And, and then growing up, you know, uh, um, and seeing how the Fillmore was like Harlem in the 30s, uh, that's how the Fillmore district was. Uh, before the hippies got there and then to see the transformation and then see the way it is now and see it. So it, it was, it was always the musically diverse uh, um, uh, experiment. A lot of people experimenting uh, crossovers, uh, 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 everything. It, it was just a real uh, good breeding ground for creativity and for people to express themselves. Did you find that Bill Graham was instrumental in developing the community, the music community, or was he just an entrepreneur, somebody who wanted to rip everybody off? Well, I, I never know Bill Graham to rip nobody off. Hmm. I, I'll be, I mean, but then again, I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a uh, journey or somebody, but right. If it wasn't for Bill Graham, a lot of those people would have never been known. Right. But as far as the music community that I came out of, um, I went to junior high school a half a block from the film auditorium, mm -hmm. the real film auditorium, not the Fillmore West. Right. That was that's another whole that's another whole venue in another whole part of San Francisco with another whole story, which I got the chance to be involved with that a bit too. Mm -hmm. But we had. Uh, a gentleman named Charles Sullivan owned the Random Field Auditorium, an African-American gentleman. And so in the 60s, um, me and my cousins, we'd have our battle of the bands at the Field Auditorium. <laughs> yeah. uh, I got to see James Brown that there, you know, before he got a new ba bag, just like the Apollo Theater. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, all, all of our Fillmore shows it was an African-American playhouse in an right. African-American neighborhood. It was just like Harlem. And I, I think what attracted a lot of young people of all different other nationalities and races was that it was very tolerant and it was very cheap. Mm. And you could come there, let your hair down, uh, say if you were uh, for women's rights. I mean, we, we were fighting for women's rights. We were fighting for gay rights. We were fighting for civil rights, uh, uh, elder, um, seniors' rights. I did benefits for all of them. Wavy gravy. I did benefits for every one of them. And, and, and so we had a community before the hippies got there. And, you know, it's sort of, it, it's what, what was, it's funny, what was 
eye-opening and transformational for one group of people was the death now for another group of people <laughs> because we lost our community playhouse we lost our neighborhoods mm-hmm. the prices are sky high in San Francisco right. now right. and we lost control we lost control of what was presented musically culturally so it was to Bill Graham's credit that he did put blues and jazz on a lot of those shows and I think he was smart because in the Fillmore district the blues and jazz would attract a lot of people who had already been coming to the film auditorium. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I remember seeing the Temptations there, the real Temptations, with all my my friends and all my my, my brothers and sisters and everything. It was just like a, out of some uh, uh, a movie, you know, because this was our Beatles. You right, know, this, this right. was... And so, but then when Bill Graham came, I got a chance to perform in a lot of that area too. And I got a chance to, you know, um, enjoy the Yardbirds every other week because they played in somewhere. Every- I got a chance to enjoy Led Zeppelin for free in, in Kizar Stadium. I got a chance to enjoy uh, uh, um, all the other guys, Grateful Dead and Airplane and Big Brother, because I knew them. They lived, they moved to our area, you know, so I, I knew them. So it, it was a real, I, I think it was a real fertile thing. But to be quite honest, I don't think it could have happened anywhere else. Mm. I don't think Bill Grant could have got an a, a, a auditorium in another part of town and they would have let him, you know, let it be as diverse as it was. Because right. it wasn't like the police wasn't watching the area, but um, evidently uh, the police didn't have, an, they didn't have a problem with it. You know, I mean, they, they might have a problem with someone smoking a joint and smoking this. But after a while, when you get 3,000 people in the Winterland Auditorium, which was right around the corner from the uh, uh, Fillmore Auditorium, uh, what, what are you going to do? Arrest three thousand people? Right. For, for, <laughs> for, for several people smoking smoking weed, which is not legal now, or are you going to arrest uh, two thousand people because uh, a handful of people are tripping on acid? You know. So it was it was an open it was an open time and it's a fertile time and. I really uh, feel privileged to be a part of it and to be, um, you know, to have it affect me the way that it did. Do you feel those messages are are things that you carry through to your life today and to the music that you make today? Well, it definitely informed who I am, you know, um, and and the way it informed me was that, to me, there is no bad music. Mm -hmm. There's just different styles of music, okay, because... What's bad to me or what's bad to you, what's bad to somebody else, you could be looking on, a, on something and that, that same group that's bad to me and you are paying to 20,000 people. Right. Well, I was going to ask you me, about that. <laughs> well, if it's one of me and 20,000 people are digging it, evidently I got it wrong. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> But that's the beauty of music. I mean, it touches different types of music, touch different people in different ways. I think it's the beauty of art. It is, and, you know, it's it's just the beauty of art. It's like me, I I couldn't, I can't even draw a straight line. <laughs> but you know, I, I can tell you that I enjoy Salvador Dali, and it's not so much because he draws so good, because it's totally different from everything else. Right, Salvador Dali to me is like the Thelonious Monk of art. <laughs> it's just totally different. And he literally made it 
on his own terms. That's for sure. He made it on his, Delonious Monk made it on his own terms. And that, I, I think that spirit is the spirit, is the essence of art. You know, I, I really do. Now, we're in, we're hopefully at the end of the pandemic now. And how do you see the culture that we're in affecting art um, performances? I mean, I know that you've probably been in lockdown for quite a while, but I, I know that you're starting to get busy. You played the Falcon and you've been to, was it Sellersville? Do you think, yes. see things opening up? And, and what are the audiences like now? Well, I see things opening up a little bit. Um, I think everybody's trying to, it's like trying to get your sea legs. Everybody's trying to figure out what it is that they can do. do I'll give you an example. I, I played the, uh, the Falcon mm -hmm. this Friday. Mm -hmm. Outdoor seating. You didn't have, you, you really, they wanted you to wear your mask outdoors, but then some people say you don't have to wear your mask. Right. So, right. so it's, it's sort of confusing. That's confusing. So people sort of don't know how to comport themselves. But the next night, I played in the Sellersville Theater, and um, it had to be social distancing within this beautiful old theater. I played there a lot of times. Yeah. And so it music to me is a sort of a communal thing, organic thing. People are, you know, are you're sharing something with somebody you might not have never known and, and you're digging it together. But it's just to be quite honest, it's for me when it's spread out, like it's a little bit harder to connect. Right. So when you, if I go out in the audience and I have a part where I walk out in the audience, they're literally partitions in between people. And so it's like recording you know, recording all those old records you like. All those old records were four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. People in a studio together. Right. Playing at the same time. When when we got into technology, or as somebody called it, trick-nology, <laughs> you had one, the drummer could come in on a Tuesday and play his part. The mm -hmm. bass player could come in on a Wednesday and play his part. But you go back to all the records you like and the things you really like, Everybody was in the room together. Mm. And that's the sort of the way I felt about performing it. And with people six feet apart, with partitions in them, it's really hard to connect. And I, I think that the big thing now is that they're, with concerts I hear, I don't know for sure, that they're going to ask if people are inquired, if people have been um, uh, vaccinated. And then if you've been vaccinated, if they're going to be doing in ball games and stuff and baseball, if you've been vaccinated, there's going to be a section for people who've been vaccinated where they can take their mask off where they can do what they want to want. If you haven't been vaccinated, there's going to be a section over, I don't know. Mm. You know, I mean, if the CDC doesn't know, God knows poor little old Joe Lewis Walker, I can't <laughs> figure it out. You know, but I, I don't, I don't believe uh, in my heart of hearts that things are going to be back to normal um, anytime soon mm. because we've all got to row in the same direction and that seems to be a, a, that seems to be a bit of an issue for us. You know, I keep wondering, they're talking about opening Broadway and they want to open Broadway on September 14th and I just can't imagine them selling out uh, theaters. I mean, the theaters generally hold about 1,100, 1,200 people. Yeah. Those many people 
in the theater, you know, when we're still not, you know, totally out of the woods. That surprises me. Um, going back to the theater you were just in, do you know how many seats that particular theater had? It was about three fifty. You yeah. know, and we could only we could only sell a hundred tickets. You could yeah. only sell, you know, you know, a third. You couldn't even sell a third of it. Right. Like twenty. I don't even know, but we sold the the, the, the amount of tickets. But yeah, I, I get your point. You know, you just you just wonder. I mean, when you think about the economics of it, you know, I mean, artists want to go out and play, and and people actors want to perform in front of audiences but then from the business perspective how can, how is that manageable because you're only as you say performing to 100 people as opposed to 350 people i mean where where do you draw the line in the economics do you know what i mean it's yes i know what you mean i know what you mean and it's um it's a real dichotomy for the uh, arts in particular uh, especially when you get into groups, you know, bands, groups, right. this and that and the other, and, and 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 an amount of people congregating at the same way. I mean, just like I said a minute ago, um, I, if the CDC and, and, and the people that are, are paid to, to figure this thing out um, can't figure it out, then little old Joe Lewis yeah. Walker ain't going to figure <laughs> it out. But the whole thing is this, you know, it's just, you know, just just be honest. Um, we've all got to row in the same direction. Put mm -hmm. it like this: when they had the polio mm -hmm. vaccinations, if you saw someone with polio, you would say, "Oh my God, I don't want to get that." Right. And if they said, "Okay, well, here's a shot you get to not get it," people were lining up to get it. Okay, it wasn't a political thing. Right. I agree. It's not, it's not, a, you, it's, it's no such thing as a Republican person with polio right. and a Democratic person. Right. It's a person with polio. Right. When, when, when it became a situation, I think in the United States, for whatever reason, I'm not putting a yet, uh, <laughs> uh, right or wrong on it. That's up to the individual to, to, to define for themselves. But when it became a political thing, uh, mainly, uh, at some point, uh, last year, where it became a, a, a thing of, well, um, the blue states aren't doing what I want them to do, or the red states ain't doing what I want them to do, or this, and I'm going to take my political power and make it a political thing. Um, that sort of made it a little bit harder. But my, 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 my honesty with this is, is, is pretty basic mm. and, and 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 this this is my truth uh across the board from from the vaccine to social justice to um who is president of the united states right now we all no matter what color no matter what religion, no matter what sexual preference, we all know right from wrong. We all know the truth. Mm -hmm. So if someone doesn't want to do what's right, that it, it's not the question of the virus or who's president or who can, if 
a certain day was an insurrection or a bunch of people upset because of a speech. It, it, but the bottom line is we all know right from wrong. We all, most of us have a moral compass. Most of us know what's going on. So if we as a country and as a people can't agree to row in the same direction uh, to in a situation of getting a shot for a virus, then we as a country are into no man's land. And it really isn't no man's land. We, we've sort of been in a situation before where we couldn't agree on things and it didn't end too well, you know? And we can all sort of tiptoe around it. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that somebody wrote a very interesting thing and I won't take credit for it. And it said a third of, a third of our countrymen can watch another third kill another third and 10% would say, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I've got no opinion. Well, I used to think that wasn't true. <laughs> you know, I used to think that wasn't true. But as we see with the advent of, of a lot of it just, I, I don't even, I don't even call it gun violence no more. Mm -hmm. I, I just call it the wild, wild west. Right. On, right. on every coast, whether it's South, North, if, if we can't agree on just the basic things, you know, not taking someone's, you know, um, right to defend themselves or anything like that. But if we can't put a, a stop to this kind of bleeding, then we're going to run out of blood, mm. you know. And it's the same with the arts. It's the same with anything. We all know right from wrong. We all have, we all have the capacity to be our brother's keeper and our sister's keeper. <laughs> Regardless of what sex, sexual preference, regardless of what race, regardless of what economic strata. And it, it seems like right now that this, this, it's just a hard thing for us to do, you know. And I, I, for the life of me, um, it's amazing that the generation that fought World War II did it, you know, because they had to do it. You know, it, it's amazing to me that we can get on the on the football field and play the Super Bowl, the team's totally mixed racially, totally mixed sexually, totally mixed. Now you have female trainers. Now you have a female general manager of sports. We can do everything together when it's like that. We can win the World Series together. You, you don't, when, when you're, we can go fight a battle in Turkey together. People don't care if you're transgender. If, if, you're, if, you, if, you, if you save their butt, they don't care if you, what color you are. They don't care what, 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 um, if you're a man or female or a woman, they don't care if you're pregnant, but it's funny when you, when you get out of that situation, then it seems like the differences have a tendency to be, uh, one of those things that are, are tantamount to, uh, uh, being able to, uh, use as a wedge against people. And I, I don't think that, um, I, I feel that we can do. We always say we're better than that, but I believe we can do better, you know. You know, if you go back to the very essence in the beginning of our country, 
Our country was based upon, and you look at the Constitution, it was based, we the people, we the people working together as one unit. And it's not about individuals. I mean, certainly the Constitution is there to provide and protect individual rights, but it's also about us working together as a community. And that's what I think gets a little distorted in this whole vaccine issue, because people are thinking about it in an individual perspective. And believe exactly. me, I respect people's right to choose whether or not they want the vaccine, but they also have to think about the impact on the larger community. They're not just doing it for themselves. They're doing it for you. They're doing it for their grandparents. They're doing it for people they don't know. And I have to, I, you know, I don't understand how people don't get that concept. It's about making a sacrifice like those people did during World War II. Yes. And, and we, and, and it, you know, it just to piggyback on what you said and, you know, just, just the things that I just said, we, we make those, um, sacrifices, um, a lot of times, uh, and it just here, uh, not too long ago where it, it you know, a vaccine has become political, um, and like you say, we don't want to um, offend anybody right. in the context of, of you know, um, trying to take someone's individual freedoms because that's not what it's about. But I, I do, I do believe in my heart of hearts that you know we are our brothers and sisters keepers. And you know, you you, you said you know when when you said about um, the. Uh, um, you know, in the Constitution, uh, in the Declaration of Independence, we the people, um, uh, it should be that. Although, it, just to be honest, you know, we ain't got enough time to go into the situation that it, it never really did mean we the people. Right, <laughs> it did, it, right, it right. Mean, that's another story. Right. <laughs> you know, but that's okay. I, I, You know what? That's then. We're here now. You know, and, and what we can do now is to try to make that a reality. Because I believe that the founders that wrote that wanted it to be the reality. That's just, you know, we're all flawed. They didn't, it, it wasn't the reality, and it hasn't been the reality. But uh, as, as it is now, this is the, this is the best mousetrap I know, and I've been all over the world. You know, I, I, I'm fortunate in, in that context. I've been in, a, in Africa. I've been in China. I was in China when this thing broke out. Mm. I was in were China you really? in December. We were in China in December, not last year, the year before. 2019. And we, yeah, and we we played both Blue Notes. We played the one in 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 uh, uh, in Shanghai and um, Beijing. Just so happened, we said, "Oh man, let's catch the train from Beijing to Shanghai." And that's uh, uh, was a four hour ride for. 100 and something miles. Mm. I mean, the bullet train. But, but you know, uh, on the train was humongous and, and just uh, uh, just so many people. And, and I'll know that when we got there, we get from one part to the other part of China, from, uh, um, it was, um, okay, we did the gig and we got home. And it wasn't more than two weeks later that they started uh um, well, the, the the virus a little bit. Of course, it, it wasn't really taken seriously for a long time. But um, 
it was starting to be talked about around the world. And we, when we looked at the marriage, geez, we, we, we passed some of those places, you know, mm-hmm. so there's no way we didn't get on that train and some people hadn't, you know, been, right. uh, you're probably infected because what they did, Chinese, they shut down the whole darn town. You know, right. they weren't joking around. They, right. they shut down the whole town. So let's talk a little bit about artist rights, because we're talking, you know, we're talking about politics. I read an article in the Times about how um, streaming and the revenues from streaming is something that musicians are are irate about, how the music companies are the ones who are making all the money for streaming. Meanwhile, the musicians are only getting, you know, a fraction of a penny. Have you been involved with uh, or heard any discussions with your, in your music circle about this issue? And what, if anything, are your friends or your community thinking of doing to help change the dynamic? Well, you know, most, mostly all of us professional musicians um, have never been happy with, uh, I'll name them all, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, uh, anyone that do the streaming because you know, the, um, I'll give you an example. About four or five years ago, uh, this young man named Pharrell had a worldwide universal hit called Happy. Mm-hmm. Not did only the thing that came happy, I'm happy, happy. <laughs> you heard it everywhere. You couldn't go anywhere. I, I think it not only won a Grammy, it won an Oscar and everything. Well, um, I think Spotify streamed it 20 million times, more than 20, 200 million. I'm sorry, something like 200 million times. And he got a check for, I don't know, Mm $2,000. I don't know. You know, and and so you wonder, well, how how is this possible? Right. And so they got into it. And so um, I don't know the particular workings of the the contracts or anything. But uh, the the streaming company said, oh, we sent the record company the money. And the record companies are really smart when they came... When it came to signing contracts, they didn't include the musicians in the streaming. Mm. And so the record, oh, we, well, we sent them some money. They said, oh, we sent them a couple hundred thousand dollars. Well, if, if your song gets streamed 200 million times, you, you, um, and, and you get a check for 1900 something dollars, something's wrong. Or right. 2000 or 200000 it's still something wrong. And, and you fast forward to now, just like this weekend, um, a, a great musician in England named Paul Weller had a great group called The Jam. I used to live in England, so I know his groups. And, and so Paul Weller, big star. And uh, he just put a thing on, 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 uh, up on the internet for everybody to see. Facebook, all musicians to see, all promoted. His album, which was released just not released, not too long ago, four million spins, the complete album on Spotify. Four million spins. The complete album, you very rarely see that now because they like to spark things in the singles and what have you. He gets a check for 1,900 pounds. Mm. And um, I can't say what Paul Willis said on Facebook, but I don't blame him. <laughs> and it's sort of a unfortunate because the cat's out of the bag now. And you wonder why people like uh, the Who aren't going to make any more records or why... And and there's another element to that is that you have people, musicians now that don't really see... They won't say they don't see a future in recording. But what they're doing is they're selling 
all their catalogs. Mm-hmm. Started with yes. Bob Dylan, yes, Neil Young, Stevie Nicks, um, one of the big ones just recently, Paul Simon. Right. And I guarantee you, you're going to see a lot of artists selling all of their music away to these conglomerates. And they, now, now, here's the trick. If all the music gets sold to two or three or four conglomerates, what does that say? What are you going to hear? What are you going to be able to buy? Because they're going to be able to force feed you whatever the heck they want to. Right. And, you know, can you imagine all the conglomerates owning all this stuff in 63 or 64 mm-hmm. and then coming out and say, well, most of the records that we play on the radio are two minutes and 12 minutes seconds long you know i mean we we can play the monkeys all night long (laughs) we can play you know but now we got a record that's six minutes and 50 seconds long what are we going to do with it well cut it in half well bob dylan and john hammond won't let you cut roll like a rolling stone in half well we're not going to let it out i guarantee you that's what they would have said i guarantee you but they wanted to chop like a rolling stone in part one and part two Bob Dylan, John Hammond would not let them do it. That's the first record that played that long on AM radio. And so in in San Francisco, they, in different places, they didn't want to play it. So in San Francisco, what we did, we invented FM radio. Right, right. We the ones that invented playing cuts that lasted 10 minutes long, 15 right. minutes long. And that was because of DJs like Tom Donahue, Sly Stone, who was a big known DJ, a lot of people don't know that. Rest of Muse, Syracuse, and all these guys. It got so they bought, they took over their own radio station mm-hmm. so they could play. Uh, the first one was Creedence Clearwater's version of Susie Q. Right. It was like nine minutes long. <laughs> right. They played it from stem to stern. Can you imagine if we hadn't came up with playing those songs? You'd have never heard a stairway to happen. You'd have never heard what was going on. You heard any of that stuff. The musicians came up with that. So, in, in essence, the whole thing with streaming rights and what have you is basically running musicians out of uh, what they've done. Because let's face it, you know, musicians, you don't sell many records. The mom and pop, the record store's gone. You don't, uh, the performances in the last year and, and, and a half have been uh, very far in between. And so, uh, if you're an older artist like artist like Bob Dylan, you're 80 years old. You're saying, "Well, what, what, I'm not going to sell any records from the bandstand. I'm not going to. There's not going to be any rush for Sony to sell, you know, um, Free Will and Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. You know, so why don't I just take the whole package and sell it? And I, you, you know, and I, I'm through with it. Right. You know, I'm through with it. And unfortunately, that's that's what happens. I mean, but can you imagine? If this thing starts taking a hold and you, they sell the Beatles catalogs, the Rolling Stones catalog, Earth, Wind, and Fire catalog, I guarantee you it's coming. Right. A lot of those people you've mentioned have already, have already you know? sold. You know, I mean, a lot of those people have already sold. The Beatles have sold. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, it, it horrifies me whenever I turn on a commercial and I see those songs being used, you know, for to sell ivory soap or to, to sell, you know, uh, insurance or, or cars. I mean, it just, it, there's something about it that's just very ethically wrong as far as I'm concerned. But the musicians aren't in control of the you know music what it, what anymore. It, 
Yeah, what it's like, it's, it's like having a Van Gogh painting and saying, well, you can do this if you just connect this, that, with that, that, right. on the back of a comic book. Right. You can be Van Gogh, too. You right. can be John Lennon. You can write Strawberry Fields forever. No, you can't. Right. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> can't do it. So what have you been doing during this, uh, during the lockdown and the quarantine? Have you been uh, writing? Have you been recording on your own? What have you been doing to pass the time? Well, I finished direct. That's going to be coming up September uh, or, or, or August, September. And, and I played on a lot of benefit records for, for people, musicians. And I just got to be listening to uh, uh, one of the songs I did for a great group out of the box area called Mist. I played on their record. I, I played uh, a lot of benefit records. And I, and I played on records with some friends that did all right. I played on Dion's record. Mm-hmm. Uh, friends, me and Dion and Van Morrison did a cut, and, and I, I did. You know, I, I've been doing a, a lot of uh, 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 stuff to to help, try to help people. You know, I did some benefits, and I'm doing some more uh, to try to help. And, and things are picking up a little bit. I, I have. Uh, I was supposed to be in Poland in May, but it definitely that mm-hmm. wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so uh, when, when you do, a, let's say you um, do a song with. Uh, 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 I'm sorry. I was going to say, when you do a song with Van Morrison, do you do? Are you doing it digitally through technology? Obviously, right? Well, well, well. The, well, the song with, with Dion, we 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 wanted to do it in the studio, but but because of the you know the the COVID, it couldn't. So we 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 did it. You know, I, I laid my guitar part down um, with him, and after him and Van had had laid the the music down mm-hmm. of the. Um, actually, I take that back with that particular song. Dion sent me, it was a skeleton of a song, and I laid down about two or three guitar parts, as I always do, and I said, you take what you like, and then him and Van sang the song, and so they were able to, you know, edit it very tastefully, because I, I, I like, you know, don't like to get too busy on the guitar when you've got great singing, and, and so we had to do it like that. Now, I have played with Dion, you know, and Van, but we couldn't do it because of the, the, the virus, uh, um, in, in uh, people not being able to be, I don't even think a lot of studios were open mm-hmm. at, at that time either. So um, uh, that was that. But it came, it, it, it came together very well. You know I mean, these guys know what they're doing. You know. It seems like you really enjoy collaborations because I was looking at your, actually listening to your last album, um, Blues Coming On. And you had some amazing people on that, and it just seemed like each song had a different flavor to it. I mean, there were some that was one that was psychedelic, one like the Yardbirds, and there was one like James Brown. It seems like you're a musical chameleon, but it also seemed like that was related to the people that you were collaborating with on each track. Well, well, you know, it goes back to when you were talking about going back to the Fillmore and what have you. Um, the good thing that I like when Bill Graham and, and Chet Helms and, and the Mind Troop came, and then Chet Helms took over the fan, Bill Graham took over the Fillmore, and the Mind Troop just did things around. The good thing was the diversity of the music, because you could go to one of those Graham shows to see the Grateful Dead, but Holland Wolf would be on the show and uh, the Charles Lord Quintet. Or you could go see the Airplane with Yorm and Jack and them, uh, and that before Grace Slick, or you can go see them, and and 
Um, Muddy Waters would be on the bill with um, uh, Fleetwood Mac, the right. real Fleetwood Mac, right. with Peter Green, or the original Fleetwood Mac, right. I should say. Uh, so you, if you went for one thing, you could get schooled in another thing. So it, th- that sort of infuses the kind of musician I am. Because if you notice musicians from the Bay Area, it's really wide open. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just, if, if you just, if you listen to the Grateful Dead now, and you think, oh, that's the Grateful Dead. They've been like that all. No, they started playing a lot of blues in a lot of country because Jerry's really, really talented. And then they morph into what they do. The airplane, a lot of folk music, like with Paul yes. Cantor and 12 string. And, and when they got Grace Slick, it turned a little bit more popular, a little bit more because Grace had that songwriting ability. Uh, Sly Stone, Sly Stone could play funk. He produced a lot of rock records. Very successful, all kind of stuff. Sly was um, an amalgamation of all those things. Well, so am I, you know. And if you look, musicians coming out of the Bay Area, like Tower of Power, Huey Lewis, Doobie Brothers. I'm thinking of Tommy Johnston and them. Uh, uh, Mosquito, uh, Neil Schoen, we call him Mosquito. A Journey coming out of Santana. Was Carlos and them was a blues band, right? Uh, I mean, I, I know Carlos, you know, and his brother George, who rest his soul, because George just died in the COVID here last year. Um, so all these musicians, I don't think any of them started playing one thing. You know, I, I just think that they all started playing a lot of things, and that's why I, I think that I'm to answer your question. Uh, my my, I love all types of music. My mother tongue is blues, but I have played with everyone uh, 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 from Ronnie Wood to to uh, um, Herbie Hancock uh, to Willie Dixon uh, uh, to John Lee Hooker. Um, um, you know, I just you know, to me, music is music. Right. You know, there is no. I think when you start getting into separate music, it, it it's really it does it a disservice. And I think that's why if you see anybody that's been really popular, you know, and of art you just start with the Beatles. The Beatles played everything. They just didn't play they just didn't play Beatles stuff. You listen to their stuff way back and they're doing uh um Everly Brothers, a lot of Buddy Holly, a lot lot of Chuck Berry, Richard Little Richard, just all their influences. And as they came along, it's the same with all those groups. They found their own sound. And 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 uh and their sound was an amalgamation. And they were just fortunate that they had a lot of talent in a lot of areas, mainly vocally, you know, and songwriting, you know. So what are your plans uh in the future? You said you've got an album well, coming uh, out in August or late summer. Mm-hmm. Yes, things are open up a little bit. I'm playing a, a next month. Um, uh, I think I'm going to um, um, uh, 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 Kentucky to play a, a show. And then I'm playing another show up, um, near the Cleveland or somewhere. And a, a couple of things. And then the next month we're doing it's open up a little bit more mm-hmm. we're waiting for that july the first date to open that they're saying here so 
But I, I'm doing a different little show. Somebody can look at my website, JoeLewisWalker.com, or the Facebook page. Yeah, I've got several of them. One's Joe Lewis Walker, which is the music, and Lewis Walker is more of my personal thing. Mm -hmm. But um, we, we'll be playing more, and, and uh, you know, if things open up, I can go to Europe this year. I don't, it doesn't look too too possible. I know I'm, I'm going next year. I'm booked to go next year. And now people are booking two years out, so... I'll right. also be going in 23, and um, uh, they want me to come to India in 23, to Mumbai. They have a gigantic, and different places, Poland. Uh, hopefully, uh, uh, I can't go back to Brazil. It gets a little bit of a mess. Right. India's uh, a mess, so, too. India's a real mess right now. Yeah, yeah, but we're thinking by 2023, it'll yeah. be better. You know, and if, it, if India isn't better by 2023... We're all going to be in a heck of a lot of trouble, right? Um, because if so goes one of us, one of our countries. I mean, especially a country that big, and so goes a lot of us. So we're looking forward to, to doing some planning. We're looking forward to this record coming out, and um, you know, I, I did a little uh, some stuff for PBS when this this has been done. I did a uh, they had a great program, Driving While Black, where I did some of the music, a little bit of the music which is uh, just an interesting thing uh, uh, that uh, uh, PBS uh, uh, did. And so I'll, I'll be doing more things like that, hopefully. And just, you know, trying to keep my, my, myself busy artistically and, and uh, stay inspired and stay healthy. Well, good, Joe. We really appreciate you uh, sitting in with us backstage here at the Bardavan. And uh, we look forward to your record. We look forward to your tour. We look forward to the world opening up again so we can see you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so and, much. And, and we really I, appreciate it. Okay, and we'll see you uh, in Poughkeepsie. See you in Poughkeepsie. <laughs> see, see you in the market. Right. <laughs> take care. Yeah. <laughs> okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Joe Lewis Walker and the Bardavon 1869 Opera House for supporting our Backstage with the Bardavon podcast. Backstage with the Bardavon is produced by Patrick Watson and Jody Millman. Sound engineering and editing is by Ben Harris. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can review it on iTunes and don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Backstage with the Bardavon. Thanks again for listening and see you next time Backstage with the Bardavon.